A few years ago, I heard about a pastor who was a pastor at a pretty large congregation out west, and he was and is a very gifted speaker, preacher. He's an author. He's got a book that he released, and he's pretty well-known. I hadn't heard of him at the time, but I found out later that he's, he's pretty well-known. And the reason that I heard about him, though, was not a, because of any of those things. Uh, I heard about him because of a, a problem that he was having with his family. Uh, his five-year-old daughter one day was at school, and she fell, and they thought that she had injured herself, and, and so they took her to the hospital, and what they found out at the hospital was something that was much worse. Uh, they discovered that she had cancer, and so the mom, who was really wanting people to pray for her and to know about the situation, set up a blog, and one way or another, I found myself on this blog, and I subscribed to the blog so that I would uh, receive updates, and um, the mother, you know, every month or so, she would write something about what was happening. Now, unfortunately, the, the cancer that this little girl was facing was very aggressive, and what would happen is the family would have kind of these little victories, these moments where they would discover that the cancer had gone away and they would think that everything was going to be okay and, and they'd post pictures of little celebrations and things like that and, and really get their hopes up only to be crushed by later news that the cancer had returned. And almost all of these times it was worse than it had been before. And eventually what happened is they received news that this little girl, whose name was Daisy, was terminal. And uh, I remember at the time, the pastor took some time away from the church to focus on his family. And then uh, after four years, you know, it, it began when she was five, she passed away when she was nine years old. And um, I was able, because of technology, to listen to the funeral. I, I tuned in. They, they live-streamed it. And I don't remember why, but I was in my car as I listened to this funeral. And the funeral was excruciating. You know, I mean, I'd been following this story for a couple of years. They'd been living this story, and it was so hard to listen. In fact, I remember driving just with tears. I, I thought, this is dangerous for me to, to listen to this. And yet, as excruciating as the funeral was, it was also absolutely wonderful. And I really didn't know how this pastor did it at the time, because the, the father got up and, and he spoke at the funeral of his own nine-year-old daughter, and I thought, how can you do that? How could someone do that? And, and what happened was he preached this message that was so incredibly vulnerable and honest I mean, he, he talked about the darkness that he had felt, the, the doubt of, of God that he and his wife had faced and, and experienced. And, and he was so open about these things. And yet, at, at the same time, just naturally, totally authentically, what sprung out of him was just this sense of hope and, and peace and strength in Christ. And what was so interesting about it, as, as I look back on it, is that it was a pastor who seemed like he was two people at, at the same time, two people living in the same body, a man who was completely crushed and, and destroyed and ruined by everything that had happened with his daughter over these horrible five years. And on the other hand, a man who was as alive and whose heart was as indestructible as any of us could ever hope to be. 
And what I want to say this morning is, I think that that's what a real, genuine faith in Christ is meant to produce. I think that man exemplified what God wants to do in each and and every one of us. He wants us to have a a certain sort of realness and authenticity and and grittiness about the struggles that we face in life. But he also wants us to have hope. He, He wants us to have a sense of peace. And I think the word that best represents this is the word resiliency. I think God wants us to have a resilient faith. Uh, Resiliency is the capacity to be stretched in life, stretched and stretched and stretched, and and yet also to be able to recover. Uh, It's the ability to to bounce back, to get back up on our feet again. Uh, Technically, resilience is the ability to spring back into shape when an object faces pressure or force. And what it requires is is it requires a mix of two things. Uh, On one hand, a great flexibility. And on the other hand, an endurance, uh, uh, a toughness. And that's what I want to think about today. I want to think about what it means for us to have, as, as I believe this pastor that I spoke about did, a resilient faith. A faith that um, authentically bends and flexes, that, that feels the pain and aches of life deeply and, and, and fully, that doesn't deny them. But a faith that also doesn't fracture, it doesn't snap when it faces those things. And, and, and a faith that's just as effective and helpful during dark seasons of life like that man faced as it is during just the everyday mundaneness and, and sometimes boredom that we face in our life too. So my question today is, how is a resilient faith forged? How do we get that? Where does it come from? How do we pursue it? And fortunately, I, I think we have some answers to that question that are found in this passage here. Because I believe that what the Apostle Paul is describing in this passage is the resiliency that he's found in his faith. So this is what we're going to take a look at this morning. Uh, Paul gives us a little background before he cuts to the main idea in verse 3. Verse 3, Paul says, writing to this church in Corinth, he says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. So just real quickly, what's happening here uh, is this. One of the things that's really, really surprising about the ministry, the work of of the Apostle Paul, and and especially the Apostle Paul of, of all people, was that especially when it came to his work with the church in Corinth, he was received at times incredibly poorly. It was not easy for him to do what he did with this church because the people of this church were constantly challenging him and often gossiping about him and accusing him of doing things that were wrong that he actually hadn't done. They'd compare him to other people and insult him behind his back. It was very, very difficult. And what happens in this passage is that Paul decides finally that what he needs to do is he needs to defend He needs to kind of go on the defensive. And we would think, if if I were him, I would want to be defending myself. But what's interesting is that Paul doesn't really defend himself. What he does is he defends the integrity of his ministry. 
And the reason we find that he defends the integrity not of himself, but of his ministry, is because what he's really defending is the message of his ministry, right? The the gospel, the, the truth that he's trying to give them and teach them. What Paul realizes as he works it out in in his mind is that if the things the Corinthians have said about him are true, that it actually doesn't just reflect poorly on him as a person, but it reflects poorly on his ministry and then all the way to his message. If they can't believe him for who he is, why should they believe anything that he says? And so what Paul does here is he says that the the evidence that that I am the real deal and that the message is the real deal as well is that that I've been able to live it out. God has enabled me to endure. And he says my faithfulness under the trials that I've faced are the evidence of the fact that this message that I give really is true. It really can be believed. It it really can be depended on even underneath the weight of great pressure in life. And so Paul is going to talk about these trials that he's faced and how he has endured them. And that's what he does next. And as we move on, what I want us to consider is, I think that what he does is he tells us three things about resilient faith. We learn about his faith. He gives us kind of a behind the scenes of what it is and how it works and what it looks like. And so what he does here, beginning in the second half of verse 4, is he says, he says that he commends himself in, in every way. They commend themselves in every way, he says, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. He says our ministry has passed the test in all of those things. And the first thing that I think that we learn about resilient faith this morning, just from this passage, which I'll explain in a minute, is that resilient faith is a faith that is prepared to endure serious adversity from without. A resilient faith is a faith that is prepared to endure serious adversary from without. Now, when I use the word without, what I mean is, I mean things that come from outside of us. Okay, These are things that aren't necessarily our fault. These are things that we didn't cause and that we can't control. Everything that Paul lists in that first section fits under those categories. He's got this long list of challenges that came at him from the outside. And, and actually, if you're familiar with his life, you know that there's many other things that he could add to the list. This list was just the start. If you take a look at the book of Acts, you'll find many other uh, challenges and adversity that came at him from without. And what I think this is, is I think it's a good reminder to us as we think about forming a stronger faith that one of the things that we ought to really expect in life is that we too will face great adversity from without. And we'll face things sometimes potentially that will feel like they're far more than we can handle. You know, a a nine-year-old girl getting cancer is one of those things, isn't it? Um, one thing that really bothered me about that whole situation with this pastor and his wife and and the daughter was that at one point, towards the end of her struggle with cancer, they decided to pursue kind of a last-ditch effort. 
And the effort was they were going to take her to a clinic in Europe that was going to do some sort of a special procedure that they thought could save her life. And so part of what the blog was doing for a little while is it was raising funds for this. They were collecting, I think they had to raise something like $20,000 in order to make this happen. And so they just, they set a lot of their energy in doing this and asking people to pray for this. And I think there was a gathering at the church where they sent them off and and they went over to uh, Europe to have this uh, treatment done. And I remember they came home, and one of the early posts on, on the blog was, was just was odd because it was so short, and, and the others had been so strong. The, the mom just said, we're, 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 the, the cancer didn't work, or the treatment didn't work. She said, we're, we're devastated. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you more information later. And, and I remember feeling angry at that time. I mean, actually kind of angry with God, if I'm honest. Like, like, why did they have to go through all of this fundraising and taking all this money for something that didn't even work? And they probably feel guilty about it, even in, in, in hindsight, right? I mean, it, it just seemed to me like, oh man, that's not even the straw that broke the camel's back. My, my back would have been, been broken months and months ago. God, how could you do this? Did, did, did you really have to allow this to happen on top of everything else that they've gone through? Here's a, a guy who's trying to serve you, and, and hasn't, hasn't he been through enough already? And sometimes in the life of, of somebody else or, or in our own lives, sometimes we face things that, that we just think, it just seems like too much. I mean, it just seems like more than anyone ought to have to handle. It seems undeserved. It, it seems unfair. And part of what the, 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 the message of the Apostle Paul's life is, I think, is that, yes, sometimes life is very unfair. Yes, sometimes God gives people in life incredible weight that he asks them to bear up against. And, and, and it helps to remind us and, I think, to prepare us that, um, that we, we need to be ready for those things, too. Now, any person who thinks that because they're a Christian and because they're a serious Christian who's really trying to follow the Lord, really wanting to serve him and do what's right before him, that, that because they're very serious about their faith, that every problem that they face in life as a result of that will eventually resolve. You know, it might, might take a week or a month or maybe even at, at max a, a year, but Everything is going to work out great in this life in the end if we just hang in there and wait. Or or anyone who thinks that if that's true, then every sad newspaper article that they read is always going to be about somebody else. It's never going to be about somebody in their family. It's never going to be about them because God puts this sort of bubble of protection along uh, around their life. Because what they think is God would maybe allow some things to happen to me, but he would never allow anything truly terrible to happen to me or, or someone that I love. Something that would really seriously damage me or wound me. And unfortunately, a person who, who believes that potentially is setting themselves up for great disappointment with God. Because God doesn't always follow those rules. Those aren't his rules. See, I think that most Christians expect in life that they're going to receive a few cuts and bruises, but 
many of us really are not prepared for when our bones are shattered. We're not prepared for those times that something comes out of the blue that we just don't expect and we can't fathom. But a a resilient faith, the kind of faith that, that, that Paul talks about here, is a faith that somehow is equipped for those things. It doesn't look forward to them. It doesn't want them. It doesn't invite them but it's ready for them somehow. And, and the person doesn't even realize it's ready until maybe they get there. But it's a faith that can bend and bend and bend under the, the pressures of life, no matter how great they are, no matter what nightmare it is that we face, and yet it never breaks. And that pastor I listened to, I think he had that faith. And the Apostle Paul, he had that faith. And I want that faith, don't you? I want a faith that can endure any kind of adversity that might come at me from without. So how do I get that? How do I cultivate that? Well, part of how we learn is is we look at how Paul did it, and he's going to tell us in just a moment. But before he does that, he's going to tell us about one other kind of struggle that he has faced in his life. He's talked about these experiences that he's had to endure from without, these constant pressures. Now he's going to switch gears and start talking from the other direction, right? So he's talked about labors, sleepless nights, hunger. And then in verse 8, or excuse me, verse 6, he says, By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, By truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Okay, now it seems funny that those things would be included on a list of these other things. What what do beatings have to do with truthfulness? Well, what we discover here is that the Apostle Paul did not just face serious adversity from without, but he also, he says here, faced serious adversity from within too. And that's the second part, I think, of a resilient faith. A resilient faith is a faith that's also prepared to endure serious adversity from within. And what I mean by within, of course, is those things that come at us that are our fault. Those things that we are responsible for, that we, that we do cause, that, that, that we often can control. And what Paul lists here, I think very personally, is some of those internal things that he himself struggled with in his ministry. Those things that, that weren't easy for him. He says he struggled with purity. He had a hard time keeping a clean heart and a, and a clean mind. He, it was a struggle for him to keep up his integrity. His knowledge was the same way. He says, it was a struggle for me to know what to do and say in certain situations, to make wise decisions and not make dumb mistakes in the moment. He says, I've I've struggled with patience. I've had a hard time being quick to listen and slow to speak. Maybe he usually speaks before he listens or acts before he's really thought about it too quickly. Kindness, he says, is a struggle for him. It was hard for me to be gentle and considerate and compassionate to people at times. The Holy Spirit, he mentions, and I don't think he's talking about the person of the Holy Spirit, but, but living underneath the power and help and purposes of the Holy Spirit. He says, genuine love is a struggle for me. Truthfulness in speech, taking advantage of the power of God, righteousness. He's saying all these things war within me. 
Can, can any of us relate to any of the pressures and challenges and temptations that are on this list? Can we? Probably all of them, right? We could probably add some to the list ourselves. But what, what Paul is talking about here is, is he's saying, look, I've also had to face the pressures of my own character and integrity. I, I've had to do battle against uh, myself. And, and, and what can happen oftentimes is when adversity from without, well, well, it will often try to shatter or break our faith in a moment or in an event or in a short period of time. Often the adversity that comes from within, it, it just slowly wears away at us over a long period of time, doesn't it? I, uh, I think of the movie Lord of the Rings, or the books, Lord of the Rings, whichever you uh, prefer. You have that, you have this story about a hobbit whose name is Frodo, and Frodo is given this horrible, impossible task where somebody gives him the one ring, right? This incredibly evil but extraordinarily powerful ring that he's told to take all the way to Mount Doom and to toss it into the fires of Mount Doom so that it can be destroyed so that it doesn't fall into the hands of the enemy, Sauron. And what happens is that, that Frodo goes on this really, really long journey, right? And it takes him three movies, actually, to get to this place. And they're really, really long movies. And they're so long because he's got all these challenges that he's got to face along, along the way, right? You've got the Nazgul, the ring wraiths that are trying to kill him, and you've got these orcs and trolls and goblins and giant spiders that are, that are constantly trying to stop him, and his sort of quasi-friend Gollum, who you're not sure if he's really bad or good or not. And, and so finally, after all of this, in the end, after Frodo has survived everything, and after you just kind of want to go to bed at this point because you've been up too late, you, what you see is that he finally makes it to Mount Doom, and, and he's done it. I mean, he's fulfilled this impossible task, and you think, yes, he did it. He conquered this. And then, do you, do you remember the end of the movie? Right at the last second, after all of this, he totally fails, right? He totally blows it at the end. And the reason that he fails at the end is because in the very last scene, he gives in to his own internal temptation to use the ring himself, right? Remember that? He, he, he doesn't do it. He can't do it. He conquers nine hours of external uh, difficulties that are in front of him. But what you find in the end, just in that second, is, is that the danger from within becomes far more sinister and fatal and powerful to him. And that is really true for all of us. I know there, there's been a number of, of famous pastors over the last couple of years who have been uh, very prominent, very successful, have handled the, the difficulties of, of leading large churches really, really well, and they've been forced to resign or fired. And the reason was not that they weren't doing their job. In, in every one of those cases, it was character that killed them. 
They were so uh, focused on the battle without that they forgot to fight the battle from within. And it's so easy for us to do the same thing, to underestimate the power of sin in our life, what it can do, how it can deceive and trick us, the kind of ruin and damage that it can cause, and yet so many play around with it. We, we toy with it thinking that we will win and everything will turn out fine and we may get a cut or a bruise, but not a broken bone. What I think this reminds us is that if we're going to have a resilient faith, we've got to be truly prepared to live that battle, to to deeply um, face and be able to fight and stand firm to that adversity which comes from within. And, And somehow what Paul says he was able to do is he was able to withstand even the worst in himself. He withstood the worst out of himself and the worst inside of himself. And he didn't do it perfectly, I'm sure. But what was the secret? How did he do it? What did the Apostle Paul know that we need to know and, and rest in that we need to rest in? And the good news is, I think he, he tells us, or at least he gives us some hint, some hope. And he moves on in verse 8. He says, through honor and dishonor, Through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Okay, so what is Paul getting at here? Well, let me just cut to my big idea really quickly. My my third thought about resilient faith is this, is that resilient faith is a faith that must embrace the paradoxes of life in Christ. A resilient faith is a faith that embraces the paradoxes of life in Christ. Christ. Now, I'm sure that's a very confusing sentence, so I'm, I'm going to explain it, and hopefully it'll make sense uh, at, some, at some point. So the question is first, well, what is a paradox? What is a paradox? Well, a paradox basically is a contradiction. A paradox is something that cannot possibly be true, except that it is true. So let me give you an example of a paradox. I'll, I'll give you a statement. If I were to say, I am nobody... That would be a paradox. And the reason is because just by saying I am means I can't be nobody, right? So I am nobody can't be true, and yet we all understand what it means. Let me give you maybe one that's a little better that I probably should have done first. (laughs) (laughs) If I were to say to you, Chris, deep down, you are really shallow. (laughs) That would be a paradox, right? How can Chris be shallow deep down? It would be impossible. It can't be true. And yet, I'm sorry, Chris, but it is true. (laughs) The Apostle Paul, what he saw and what he experienced in his faith were that as he faced challenges from outside and inside, he saw and he experienced that there were certain paradoxes at work certain things that could not be true and yet were true. 
And that's why he says here, for example, that, that he's unknown. Right? As he faced all of these struggles with life, he felt totally unknown. As he struggled, he, he said, there is nobody in the world who understands what's going on in my heart. There's nobody who feels my pain. There's nobody who knows the burden that I'm under when I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. I am totally unknown. Nobody knows me. Nobody will ever know me. Except that I'm also well-known. He says, I'm I'm unknown, but I'm also well-known. God knows him at the same time completely and perfectly through and through, inside and out. Paul says, I am dying. He says, under the weight of all of this pressure, I am losing it. I am fading fast. I do not know how much longer I can endure. I am dying, he says. Ah, but yet I live. I live. I'm healthy. I'm alive. He says, I am sorrowful. My heart is so filled with gloom and doom. And yet, he says, I'm always rejoicing at the same time. He says, I'm poor. I have nothing to live on. I don't even know where my next meal is going to be coming from. He says, and yet I have so much to give to other people. He says, I have nothing. I've got nothing in the world. And yet he says, I possess everything. I have everything I could hope for. And what you find is that Paul is like that pastor. He's like two people in the same body at the same time. One guy who is totally destroyed and ruined and and another guy who is absolutely alive and indestructible. What Paul says is, I live my life in a paradox. Now, what I want you to notice about the paradoxes that that, that Paul talks about is that there's a similarity in all of them. There's something that, that is similar between each one of the things that he mentions. Every single one of them are a contrast on one hand, if you think about it, between weakness, deep weakness, and strength. And so what Paul is getting at here is he's saying that at the same time, Christians, every person who is a child of God is all at once as fragile as a spider web and at the same time as strong as a steel beam. And what a resilient faith does is it lives in both of those realities. It accepts both of them. Now, you get the concept? Does that make sense? How does it work? And I want to finish by just talking a little bit uh, about how it plays out and how it works. Because we've got to ask the question, then, how do I integrate this into my faith? How do I move this from just my head into my heart so that I can experience these things? How does this fortify my faith? And so usually what we'll do is we'll just kind of read ahead and see what the Apostle Paul writes next. Because usually he'll describe that. But there's a problem here. When you move from verse 10, which we just read, into verse 11, the Apostle Paul changes the subject, right? He, he goes a totally different direction. And if you're anything like me, I read that and I think, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, no, I'm not done thinking about the paradoxes yet, right? I, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around Chris and, and how a paradox even works. So, so how does this work out in, in my faith? Can you go back to that? And um, I can see that you guys are very upset about that this morning, too. But... There is some good news. 
The good news is that later on in his letter to Corinth, Paul does come back to this whole idea. And he not only comes back to it, but he shows us how it's working itself out in his own life. He teaches us how he embraces the paradox in what is maybe the worst thing that he's ever suffered in his life. So if you would, if you'd skip ahead just a little bit to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I just want to touch on on this for maybe three or four or, or, or five minutes as we have left, probably more like five or six, honestly. And I'd like you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 9, and it will be on the screen behind me as well. To give you a little bit of context, here Paul is talking about something that he calls a thorn in his flesh. Imagine a thorn stuck in your flesh. It's a great illustration, and he uses this to illustrate something terrible that had come his way in life. He never names it. We don't know what it is. It's unclear. It it could have been something that was from without him, outside of him, or something that was springing up from within him. He, He doesn't say, but we know that it was very serious. And he says that he has felt harassed by this thorn, whatever it was. So harassed that he actually pleaded with God. He begged God to please remove it from him. But we find out here that God said no. God told him, no, I I won't do that. And in verse 9, he tells us why God told him that he would not remove this thorn. Just look at what he says. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. My power, God says, is made perfect in weakness. Now, do you see what it is that God gave him? A paradox, right? God's answer to Paul is a paradox. Paul says, please remove this horrible thing. And God says, no, my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, now what is God saying here? God is basically saying to Paul, I'm sorry, Paul. I will not remove that thorn. I know it's bad. I know it hurts. I know it's difficult. But Paul, I don't want you strong. I don't want you strong, Paul. I want you weak. And I've given you something that I hope will help you to struggle deeply to experience your imperfections and your flaws and your liabilities and your limitations. Paul, I want you to feel as a result of this thorn inadequate maybe even afraid at times. I want you, Paul, to be weak and broken. And he says, and the reason is, Paul, so that at your lowest point, you will realize that my grace is all you need. It's always been all you need. And not only is my grace all that you need, but it is perfectly sufficient for everything that you might face. See, the grace of God is is what lets us bend in life. It's what lets us be imperfect and struggle and fall on the ground and weep and doubt. It's what allows us at, at times to even be 
appropriately angry with God because we, we don't understand and, and we need answers from him and, and we call out to him. See, the grace of God just lets us bend and, and bend and, and bend because in it, what, what we find is that we can actually be imperfect. We don't have to have it all together that it's okay to hurt, and it's okay to feel that life is unfair and hard. It's okay to mourn. And God says, Paul, I want to put you in that situation so that you can experience that. Experience my grace as being all that you need, perfectly sufficient for you. God's grace is what lets us bend. But God's power is what keeps us firm. Because God says, Paul, when you're at that point, not only do I have grace for you that is totally sufficient, but he says, I have power for you too, right? My power is made perfect in your weakness. And so it's my grace that keeps you from bending and breaking. But it's my power that strengthens you so that you don't crack, you you don't fracture And that's the power of God. The the power of God when we are in this place is like a harness right out of heaven that holds us fast and will never let us go. It, It strengthens us underneath the weight of every struggle and temptation. I mean, God pours out his power to us and, and he says to us those wonderful words from the book of Matthew, I won't let anyone snatch you out of my hands. I'm going to let you bend so that you know my grace, but I'm not going to let you break, and I'm going to do that by my power. And and that's the tension that the Apostle Paul lived his life in. He was not one of those people. He was both. And so finally, let me just summarize. As you seek to be a faithful person through all the adversity that you face from without, and I'm sure you're facing much of it right now, and all the adversity that you face from within, what you will inevitably find, if you're honest, if you don't deny it, if you don't turn on the TV when it hurts and and just let yourself escape the pain, if you decide that you want to stand up to it, trust God through it, endure through it, what you are going to find is that you are incredibly weak. At times you will feel like you are weak to the point that you are going to break. And what it will feel is it will feel really, really bad. But somehow it's not. Somehow it's a paradox. Somehow it's bad and it's good at the same time because that's exactly the place that the Lord wants to meet you with his all-sufficient grace. And as that all-sufficient grace is at work, what we find is that he doesn't just give us grace, but that he gives us power too so that we can agree with the Apostle Paul, so that we can enjoy the same things that he did, being weak and being strong at exactly the same time. We can live in the tension of those paradoxes, and we can pray and say exactly the things that the Apostle Paul says. And I'll close with this. But God said to me in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What is the Apostle Paul's response to that? His response to that is this. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then, he says, I am strong. Let's pray. Father, we admit to you that weakness is something we absolutely avoid with every ounce of strength we have in us. And yet to hear Paul boast in his weakness, to to actually want to be weak so that he might experience your grace and your power is incredible to us. It is almost in itself a paradox. It seems like it ought to just be impossible and yet it's not. Thank you so very much that you allow us to be weak and you keep us strong at the same time. And I pray for each one of us that you would do that great work in our life. Thank you for making your grace available to us through Christ. Thank you that he died to pay the price for all of our weaknesses and struggles, all the ways that that we fail and and could never live up. Thank you that that he dealt with those things for those of us who have trusted and put our faith in you. And thank you that as a result, we can enjoy your power and we pray that we would. We pray that you would train us and teach us so that as we endure hardship from within and without, that we do it with a resiliency that only comes from you. We ask that this would be true in Jesus' name.